morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Welcome back to yet another Lockdown Sound Podcast. Joining me, as always, today is my co-host and co-partner, Hunter Trumbull. It is a great day to be on the podcast, Willie. And again, we have a great guest. A great guest today joining us. Should have a lot to talk about with this gentleman. Uh, Robbie McQueen from M4 Outdoors is joining us today. How y'all doing? Not too bad. Excited to finally sit down over the phone and talk to you and get a good podcast out of it. We've been meaning to get together for... Almost pretty much the past year now, I think. Oh yeah, we've uh, we've had a few days set up, and then uh, they've kind of come and gone. And then, hell, even today, the time zone thing kind of threw through a curveball continually. But hey, we, we got it done, and we're gonna have a have a good show for sure. Yeah, we are. So he's in New Mexico right now, I believe, but originally from Texas and that's where his business is. So do you want to give us a quick little rundown, a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do, and then we'll get to the meat potatoes of the show. Sure. I'm a certified wildlife biologist. And basically what I do in Texas, mainly, um, I work with a lot of the high fence properties. So taking care of all their paperwork, all their Texas parks and wildlife required documentation and all their tax evaluation paperwork, but mainly the, the whole generality of what we do with M4 is wildlife and habitat management. Um, anything from if, if you have a food plot that you want installed or you just want planted, um, if you need designs, if you need any habitat work done, I'll come in and write a habitat implementation uh, plan and we'll do exactly what's in that plan. Um, we'll set it up over a five-year period so we can see a starting point and we can gradually get to where your property is what where the wildlife want to be at. Um, so basically anything from pond and lake management to whitetail management, quail, turkey, if, if it's wildlife, we'll come in and we'll help you get it, uh, get your property the way you want it to be. So take me through, because this process actually is super intriguing. Take me through, if I was a customer and I had you coming out for the first time, what what is what is it step by step kind of procedure wise of how you'd go about getting the getting it ready and then preparing your plan and then going forth with your plan? So one of, one of the first things, and if anybody out there, whether they use M4 Outdoors or they use somebody else, if their first question is, "What are your goals for your wildlife?" Kick them off your property. Because at that point, I need to know what you want. I need to know what your expectations are. And I need to make sure those expectations are realistic. Um, for instance, everybody wants to grow big deer, right? They, they want to attract big deer. They want to hold big deer. But the thing is, is nobody actually wants to grow a 200-inch deer. What people want to do or what they need to focus on is optimizing the genetics present in which they have. Because 200-inch deer in the wild, that's, that's hard to do. So I need to come in, pick your brain, see what you have on the property already, and then see what equipment you have access to. Um, that way, we can then decide, are you doing the work? Are we doing the work? Or are you in an area where it makes sense to subcontract that out to somebody local? Um, then once I take your ideas in your frame of mind, I put it on paper 
and I make it as as dummy proof as possible, so to say. Because um, we can use all big scientific words, uh, carrying capacity. Um, we, can, we can talk about cover, what types of cover, thermal cover, vertical structure, horizontal structure. We can talk about all those things. But I take and I write a plan based off of what your goals are to benefit and improve the habitat for wildlife. And then from there, after we have our first meet and greet right around the property, talk about what you want and how we can improve it. I then put it on paper. And then the next step is to implement what is on paper. So again, whether that's us, whether that's you, whether that's a third party, um, we come in and we get that work done. Whether it's pond management, whether it's, again, designing and installing food plots, whether it's uh, timber stand improvements, you know, many different aspects of habitat and wildlife improvement for those properties. And then what we do after that is the final step is tracking it, right? So there's, there's no sense in giving directions if we don't know if those directions are going correctly for us or if there's things that we need to change. Um, with any plan, it's dynamic. Uh, we could set up a goal of, you know, we're going to come in year one, we're going to add X amount of acreage and food plots. Well, life happens. Let's say something something pops up to where that property owner or those hunters that are leasing this property aren't able to do so. Okay, so then what do we do? We, we kind of shift with it. So there'll be, you know, plan A, and then there'll be an alternate, but we have to be able to track that to ensure that it's going in the direction that we want it to. So there's, there's a lot of collaboration between myself and the property owners on, hey, how are things going? If they're going well, cool, let's keep on keeping on. If there's something that isn't ideal for that time, maybe we talk about prescribed fire, they weren't able to get a prescribed fire in. So what do we do? We manipulate that. We change because a fire is basically a disturbance. So then we just shift and go to a different disturbance in order to create the habitat that we want. All right. So I guess the biggest question I would have for you right off the bat is for pretty much my entire life, I've been hunting on a small plot of land as far as white-tailed deer goes. It's about 24 acres of what I was hunting on. Um, mm -hmm. This year, I had the opportunity to work with about a 200-acre plot of land that I get to hunt on. So it's pretty mm -hmm. overwhelming going from the 24 to the 200, having to upkeep everything. You know, you're working with, you got fields, you got woods, you got the marsh, you got ponds. So what's kind of some of the biggest pitfalls you see guys run into? Some of the most consistently done wrong things that you have to correct people on? Everybody trying to do everything at once. Like pe people come in and they're like, oh yeah, I want to, you know, you're going ho, right? You get this 200 acres and you're like, hey bro, I want to do this, this, and this. And I want to do this. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's just get this plan together and let's just chip away. Um, because any, anytime I'm writing a wildlife management plan or a habitat management plan for people, it is literally a five-year plan. And that's where <clears throat> me coming in and meeting with you and talking with you, making sure your goals are realistic, right? Because if, if you're trying to take that 200 acres and just over the summer, get everything done that you need for whitetail this hunting this fall, 
you're, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to miss some of the smaller things. Soil samples. That would be one of the things that if you're trying to do so much stuff that you may miss out on. And so we need to take it step by step and truly get a plan together to focus on, hey, I have to do A before I do B. I have to do B before I do C and so on. So people biting off much more than they can chew, so to say, is probably the biggest pitfall. And then the the second one um, I would say I see a whole lot is, well, I saw on TV or I saw on YouTube. Well, yes, there there's some good information out there, but you have to consider if we're only doing this, or if we only have our weekends is what normal, the, probably the majority of hunters and even anglers, whether it's duck, um, white-tailed deer, turkey, we have our weekends, right? So on TV, they have staff, or that is their job, just to maintain these food pots, just to put in these food pots, just to go and scout an area. So we need to, again, come back to those expectations and, and be more realistic on what to expect from the time that we have to put in. Gotcha. So that's definitely some good information because I would say I probably tried to tackle too much at one time when it came to this property. Um, trying to do, I guess, too much work without doing my due diligence first and getting the trail cameras out and seeing what's already going on and stuff like that. And the overall genetics of the property, um, which you already touched on genetics a little bit. So we'll stick on the white-tailed deer train here for a second. Mm-hmm. Way to fix genetics other than just, you know, obviously hunting a lot and killing off the bad genetics deer. What do you recommend for people who deal with that sort of thing? If you don't have a large property and you're not able to <clears throat> control the majority of the inputs into that herd, changing the genetics is going to be extremely challenging. So what I always recommend in in small acreage type settings is go talk to your neighbor, go talk to your other neighbor and develop these hunting co-ops, right? So that you guys are all on the same page, whether it be doe management or it be, Hey, um, we're only going to harvest bucks five and a half plus, right? And the only way to improve your genetics, so to say, in that setting, let your deer get old. The two things that we do best in a high fence setting is habitat and age. If you don't improve the habitat, they're not going to express their potential. If you don't let them get old, they're not going to express their potential. So by harvesting your young deer and by trying to, to oh, I'm going to let this one walk because um, he, he looks like he's, he's going to be a good 10 down the road. Or, oh, I'm going to take this spike. Stupidest statement ever is, oh, he's a spike. Once a spike, always a spike. No. Um, we see spikes down here go from a spike at one and a half to 160s, 170s at five and a half years old. But the thing is, is we let them get old. So when you're trying to mess with the phenotypic expression, right? What they look like, what, what they're producing on their head, 
you need to have large swaths of land. And the only way to do that, if you do have small acreages, even your 200 acre property that you're, you have access to now, that's not enough to truly do anything to, to change the outlook of what you're wanting to see on the hoof. So seeing all these deer that you do and, and, and being able to range, you know, high fence, you can, you know, their age, you know, how they're growing, you can control their habitat and that kind of stuff. But for the average hunter, mm-hmm. at what age would you say a deer's hit his mature point and, and he's kind of on the downhill slope? Where should you aim for when you're trying to control your, your herd and, and you're trying to take a mature buck? A mature buck outside of the fence is what I'll say. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a rare breed of biologist that no pun intended sees both sides of the fence. Um, and you know, again, it's, it's all situational, right? So if you and your neighbor and your other, you know, the, the properties in a certain area are on the same page, I wouldn't harvest any of my bucks until five and a half, six and a half. Anything before that, I mean, if it's, if it's a kid's first deer, um, if it's your buddy's first buck that you're taking out hunting, trying to get him into it, by all means, let them, let them hammer something that, that they're going to enjoy. Right. Because again, I'm a, I'm a big believer in if we are managing for trophies, we got to let them get old because they're not going to express their potential if they're not of that five and a half, six and a half years old. But if we have kids, um, if we have, again, somebody coming in for the first time, go ahead, let's get them something. Let's get them into the game so that, you know, the traditions are carried on so that we have people that are coming into it as opposed to attrition of the hunting community. Um, And at the same time, densities come into play, right? So if I'm in an area where my populations are just through the roof and again, not getting too scientific if the carrying capacity of my habitat, if it cannot withhold the amount of deer there, then I need to start hammering them earlier in order to get those numbers right. But that falls on the state to kind of put those numbers together in your setting. On a high fence, we come up with that number as, as biologists and we submit them to the state so they give us harvest recommendations. So they tell us to take X amount of bucks, X amount of does. But with the state, you're only allowed so many bucks. You're only allowed so many does per season. But you have to take the right ones at that point. And again, let them get old. If they're not old, if they ain't got that big barrel belly, if their brisket isn't hanging down, swaying as they're walking, then they're not ready to be shot. Let them walk, let them get big. Now, here's something I've, I've always been curious about, too. Doe, I always hear doe management, and I've, I've never truly understood. I don't understand it myself. So knowing where you're at in your field, could you explain to me mm-hmm. doe, the doe management and the importance of it? Well, the, so we refer to the does as our factories, right? So they're the ones that are doing the production side. The bucks, if, if your bucks breed, your mature bucks are going to, breeding anywhere between one to three does per year max so if you got this giant five and a half year old you're like oh i'm gonna let him go one more year so he can breed 47 does it's not the case 
but your does are the factory. And if your sex ratio, which your buck to doe ratio, if it's so skewed in the favor of the does, you know, everybody wants to hunt, hunt the rut and they like the excitement of the rut. Well, we'll put it this way. If you and I are laying in bed with one and all we have to do is roll over and there's another chick there, we don't have to travel because my sex ratio would be two to one, for instance, at that point. But if I have a buck to doe ratio, that's one to one. And that buck, after he's done breeding one doe, he's got to get up and he's got to go search and he's got to go look. So the, the concept of doe management is keep your doe numbers basically the same as your buck numbers in order to get those bucks moving more so that there is the opportunity to see them more often. And you're allowing for your more dominant bucks to breed. So if it is a one-to-one ratio, not all your does are going to come into estrus at the same exact time. So if your dominant buck is bedded up with one doe, after he's done there, he's going to go searching, right? He's going to go looking. And then once he catches the scent of another doe in estrus, well, maybe there's another young buck that was, you know, kind of trying to, to lock her down. But now that dominant buck is able to fight him off and go ahead and spread his genes, go ahead and dominate and utilize the, the correct ratios on our end as hunters and as conservationists in order to help the dominant bucks pass their genetics on. So am I safe to assume since you said a mature buck will breed two or three does max, is your ideal sex ratio two or three? Is it, am I right in assuming that? Again, it's all setting, right? So I prefer one-to-one, one-doe-to-one buck. That's it. Um, obviously, when you're low fence, no fence, that's, that's harder to achieve. That's harder to truly gauge what your ratios are. But you can, you can do stuff like trail camera pictures, right? We all have trail cameras out nowadays. So we can easily set up a trail camera for a 10-day stretch where – you set your um, set it to take a picture every five minutes for 10 days. Then based off of the information we are given and that, that those pictures are telling us, once we know, identify all the pictures with the bucks in there, we can say, hey, we saw 50 bucks over that 10 day period, but we could identify 12 of them. So then we mess with the numbers, we see the ratios, and then we take that ratio and compare it to, uh, multiply that to what our doe pictures were, and we come up with a a one-to-one or a 0.7-to-one, whatever the case may be, and then we can adjust to that. But low fence, if you have a two-to-one, that's honestly pretty good. Um, As we know, sitting in a stand, we definitely see more does, exponentially more does than we do bucks. Because a lot of people, when they're hunting, they don't want to shoot does early because they don't want to go stomping through the woods to recover the doe because they're like, oh, we'll push our bucks all over the country. Well, then if you don't shoot them early, you get to the rut. Oh, well, I don't want to shoot a doe in the rut because there might be a buck behind her. And then after they shoot their buck in the rut, oh, well, I'm not going to go sit because I've already got my buck. 
And so now our dough ratio, our buck to dough ratio is, is thrown off because people aren't harvesting does. So in, in a natural setting, if, if you're in a place that's, you know, on average, you're probably two to two and a half does per buck. And I would like something as, as what I do on my end, I would love a one-to-one as best as we can. So you mentioned, you know, letting, letting deer grow and really getting those antlers to full maturity. Um, and the differences between, you know, the high fence regulations compared to like the state regulations. I'd love to hear, since you're a lot more knowledgeable around the whitetail deer topic than we are, what kind of your mm-hmm. opinion is on state enforced antler restrictions and stuff like that that the states do to try to regulate the type of deer taken in their state? Well, every biologist, there, there's going to be very few biologists that agree on everything 100%. Um, I always say there's, there's no wildlife biologist or wildlife game manager that would manage the same piece of property the same. The, the, the biggest flaw in my personal professional opinion um, is, is the antler restrictions on width. So I know in Texas, we have a 13-inch inside spread rule for the majority of the state, and that's low fence. We can, we can talk some of the, the high fence programs that we have that are completely different. Now, do the um, low fence restrictions include no fence as well? Yes, low fence, no fence. Okay. That those are, those, those are basically your, your, your hunting on your, um, public lands more or less, or in Texas, uh, we have MLD managed lands program, uh, managed lands deer programs to where we get certain tags. Um, we can start using uh, a rifle when both seasons open for, um, public land. So on these MLD properties, we're, we're using rifles to hunt from the first weekend of October to the last weekend of February in most cases. Whereas if you are in public land, you can use your, you got to follow the seasons, whether it's bow, whether it's modern arms, um, wh- whatever the case may be. Um, so high fence and low fence, no fence, it's, it's two different ball games. So with your 13 inch inside spread rule, what, what do you guys have up there? Um, We're pretty much restricting this. Okay. So down here, yeah. uh, if, if you're going to shoot a, a quote unquote trophy, um, it's got to be 13 inches inside or wider. So what you're doing at that point is, Anything that even mature deer that are 13 inches or less, you're letting them go. So who's doing your breeding? You want to talk about, we'll get back to genetics. So if I can't shoot anything that is 13 inches or smaller inside spread, but I can shoot this dude that has a 20, 22 inch inside spread. I'm taking his genetics out of the herd and I'm letting this 13 inch, 12 inch inside spread guy breed. So what you end up doing is you, I mean, a proverbial bottleneck is, is where you take the, the majority of the genetics and you create a bottleneck, just like on your Coke bottle or Dr. Pepper or whatever you drink, Bud Light for some, um, 
and you go from the body of the drink down to that bottleneck. So you're really squeezing what is available and what genetics are passing through or continuing on. So the, the restrictions um, in, in that manner, I think, are more detrimental than beneficial. Yeah, and I think because again, you, you said. I think you talking about that makes a lot more sense to me from a genetics and just biologist side of things, because I want to kind of correct what I said earlier, because Hunter pointed out to me I was a little wrong technically. When you buy a combo tag in Michigan, your first buck can be whatever you want. If you take a second buck that year, it's got to have four points on at least one side. Um, But as far as our first buck goes, you can shoot a spike, a button buck, whatever that first buck is, it can be whatever you want. And so what that is, is that is you taking two bucks is helping balance your densities and probably balancing out your, your sex ratios. So how many does are you guys allowed to shoot? Technically, I think you can actually buy up to 11 tags without a permit. Yep. I was going to say, I know in some states you basically – you buy your first set of tags and it's, you know, one to two bucks, one to two does. And then you can just absolutely hammer the does. That gets back to our earlier statement where nobody shoots does. So now the state's like throwing tags at people like, look, put meat in your freezer. Let's go. Let's go. Let's get these ratios. Let's get these densities to where they need to be so that the habitat isn't destroyed. And when people are like, oh, well, I, you know, I'd rather shoot a young buck or, you know, he came out before the does came out. What well, you're, you're hurting the habitat, which is directly impacting the expression of the potential of your bucks in the future. So by not harvesting does, you're actually hurting your future bucks, Right. Because if they have to compete with all of these mouths to eat the high-quality forages, they're not going to be able to do that. So what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to spend the energy to go find quality forages. So are you a fan of um, – oh, now the name's going to escape me first. Um, earn a buck tag. Like earn a buck tag. I know some states are earn a buck tag. You should go first. Again, it, it would it would almost be situational, um, but I, I'm not upset with that. Um, you know, a lot of people aren't going to agree with that, and the the reason I would be okay with that as a biologist, right? Not as a hunter. Put my hunting side over there. But as a biologist, if we all want to grow healthy deer, right? That's what we want. We want a healthy herd because that will directly impact both bond production and future buck growth. So we'll, we'll lump those together. We need to maintain the population, the densities at a certain level for the habitat to be able to recover from the pressure put on it by those deer. So if we have, and most of us dudes are like, yeah, dude, I just want a monster buck, right? I want the biggest buck that I can harvest. But if we're not contributing to minimizing the competition within that area, we are contributing to us not being able to harvest our biggest bucks. 
Right. So deer, herd health, herd size, everything like that has been a huge topic in Michigan for about the past, what, decade and a half, I'd say. Um, mm -hmm. Because of CWD has been starting to cross the state pretty rapidly. Um, I don't know yeah. how much you guys have to deal with that down in Texas, but we don't get a whole lot of, we got a lot of hunters on the podcast, obviously, and people that are passionate about the sport, but we don't get the viewpoint of biologists a lot. And that's a debate mm -hmm. Hunter have quite a bit on whether bathing should be allowed in Michigan, you know, where does CD, CWD actually come from? How is it spreading? We have that debate a lot, even while we're sitting in the duck line, just you know, bullshitting with each other back and forth. What's your thoughts on CWD oh, yeah. bathing for that in a city like Michigan where right now it's totally bait? I'm, I'm okay with, with baiting. Um, I mean, everybody has a corn feeder. Everybody has a protein feeder for the most part. Um, and I look at it, even from a legality side, people are doing it whether it's legal or not. So in those instances, if people are going to, do it we either a need to crack down extremely hard but we don't have the, the manpower in order to contribute to minimizing that right we all know every um, fish and wildlife agency across the board is undermanned understaffed so with baiting i don't believe that if deer are there, they're going to find the good food source anyway. They're going to find the good water source anyway. So they're going to congregate to those areas. We all know that. We all understand that. What they're confusing supplemental feeding with is attractant. They think that it's going to attract additional deer to a certain area which would, quote-unquote, increase the spread of disease. Attractants do not work. Attractants are more for, quote-unquote, staging, right? So I put my bow blind up in this corner. Um, I know deer are in the area. I know they're coming to my feeder. So I put this attractant out, whether it be a mineral block, whether it be one of the liquid toppers um, on top of a mineral block in order to get the deer to position themselves in a manner for me to harvest them. I'm not attracting deer from three miles away to my corn feeder. That's, that's not a thing. Um, now, in a place where there's increased densities, there is the potential for increased disease spread. So, going back to it, the deer are going to find the good stuff anyway, and they're going to be around those food and water sources. So by you using a corn feeder or a pile of corn, I don't think you're going to contribute enough to the spread of any disease um, more than just, you know, a droughty year, them finding a, a good water source. Um, and for instance, the only thing that is going to make a deer truly migrate is water. They can find food. They can find, you know, deer don't grow well on grass. But if 
if they're worried about, you know, the, the potential spread of a disease, then they need to increase water sources across the state and not focus on, on baiting. Because again, deer aren't going to just go three miles out of their way because they smelled corn from your corn feeder. I'm glad that we actually got your opinion on that because that's, it's something hard that people around here don't like to talk about because you either have an opinion, but you don't know what you're talking, you, you know, you it's don't the have same it. as politics. Okay. Yeah, it's it's, it's a, an opinion based thing because we don't get to talk to a lot of biologists. And if you ask anybody who's making or enforcing the rules, they, they don't have a true mm -hmm. answer for you anyway. So I'm, I'm really glad that I, I got that take from what? you. So the, the one, one of the biggest things is this called this thing called education and research. Um, and a lot of people don't don't find their own information, right? They they kind of go off of, you know, a friend said at the barber shop or I was at a bar or I was at hunting camp and we talked about this and one guy said this. Well, where 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 does he get his information from? Um, because there is there, there's almost two sides of even science, right? You have the research side that is getting their boots on the ground and they're kind of diving into it. And then you have the implementation side, right? So your wildlife technicians um, that are responsible for, you know, we, we write a plan to put in food plots in this state park. So they're out there putting in the food plots, whereas this backside is like, okay, well, what, what food plots are we planting? Um, why the why are we doing it this way side of things and there's there's not enough people that go out and find scientific articles scientific research peer-reviewed articles that actually have that data in there um and that's what you know the the campfire talk is fun i love it there, there's nothing better than you're just sitting there talking shit with your boys um but at some point, somebody has to have something that is like, oh, that's fact-based. So that, that's where a, a lot of hard topics are because people truly aren't aware of, of what the truth is or what the truth may be. Now, if we're going to stick on the disease portion of things, I don't, I don't know how much, you know, obviously you're very knowledgeable in the deer world. If we flip over to the goose or duck side of things, the avian flu has been huge these past couple months, bringing down a lot of snow geese. We had uh, Canada for a little while saying that you couldn't cross the border with the birds. Um, we had our own states at some point saying that there was going to be restrictions on carrying birds over. And now some of these restrictions are gone. So I, I wanted to get a little bit of your opinion on that. Well, I'm, I'm not too big in the waterfowl world, but that's 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 nothing that that i can't you know get more educated on you know what i mean so if there's ever a topic that you guys want to talk about or if some of the listeners write in on we can definitely i, I have no issue doing the research to give you guys the, the the appropriate and accurate information um so the issue with with bringing anything that again has a disease into an area where it's not prevalent it may be there but it, it's it's not there in large numbers is that you may introduce that into that um population and then that that kind of spirals downhill from there because now those birds if if they're not harvested 
they're, as they're migrating and as they're flying, they're taking that disease, that illness with them. Um, the, the one thing with a carcass is that you never truly get the fluids out of it, right? So when you go to clean it and, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to prepare it, you're trying to be as, you know, quote unquote, sterile as possible, but there's always the potential for something to get into your water system or for you to leave something behind and it get into your local population or the migrating population that's rolling through. Um, disease is a, is, is a, is a funny topic um, because some places experience things completely different due to climatic factors compared to others. So it, it if it were up to me and if I had to deal with the situation, I would try to minimize the, the transport of wildlife that could potentially harbor those diseases. Yeah. And I think that definitely makes a lot of sense. And even though I don't, there's a lot of mixed opinions about whether those restrictions on transporting birds would help in a lot, but I think that definitely gives, gives a lot more knowledgeable insight onto whether those insights would have been, effective or whether the restrictions, you know, would have basically just gone unnoticed and we still would be dealing with the problem today. So I think that definitely helps a lot. And I really like the idea you threw out of having listeners write in and kind of send us a DM us questions and stuff like that and doing some question answer podcasts with somebody who's actually knowledgeable in the biology and ecology field of wildlife. So I really like that idea a lot to hit on future notes with. Oh, oh yeah. And, and heck, you don't even have to have me on if, uh, if you just have guys that have questions and you're like, uh, what's the sciencey side of this? I could, I could get that to you guys. So you can give, you know, again, the, the accurate information out there. Um, so that, that we're all educating ourselves because there, there's stuff that I don't know. I mean, simple, simply like that with waterfowl. Um, I'm definitely a whitetail guy. And when it comes to other things, it, I haven't, necessarily cornered myself into the whitetail market so to say but i have kind of funneled me to where that's where i would say i'm vastly more knowledgeable um but at the same time i i like to uh to learn as much as possible on my side as well so if there's any questions that they throw you guys for a loop let me know we'll, we'll definitely uh get you guys some information yeah, I think I actually, I have one I want to throw at you real quick. This is something kind of me and Hunter debate about a lot, you know, when we're just going back and forth. <laughs> mineral usage, you know, putting out mineral blocks and stuff for white deer. Does it actually help antler growth that much? Or is it really just kind of a Ponzi scheme to get you to buy the blocks? So how many deer do you guys have dead on the road during the winter time? I would say run into one at, within every two to three miles. Do you know why? I can't say I do other than the dumb answer of cars. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But what they're doing, and, and you'll see this more up your guys' direction, you know, where they get snow. You know, down in Texas, we don't get a whole lot of snow. Um, so what, what is happening is they're actually trying, they're, they're coming down, and yes, they're crossing the road, they're doing those things, but they're also utilizing that salt that we are using to melt the ice because they need those minerals. They need those nutrients. So a mineral block, again, I don't consider it an attractive. 
it is something that that we can utilize to improve the health of the herd. So they do utilize those minerals, those minerals, uh, micro and macro nutrients that are inside of those blocks. They actually do help. But what they're helping with more is replenishing what they've lost during the stressful periods of the year, the end of the summer and the end of the winter. So during those two periods, they're utilizing a lot of what they have stored up in their body. These mineral blocks help supplement what they're not getting from their native diet. So is it helping grow antlers? Yes and no. It's not going to blow them up from a, a 140 to a 220. But what it's doing is it is allowing the additional nutrients that they are taking up from either the mineral block or their native uh, forages, they're able to utilize that for overall health and overall growth. I can't believe that not only have I never thought of it, and I'm guessing Hunter has never thought of it either because both of our jaws hit the floor, but I've never even heard anybody in Michigan say that there's so many deer hit here because of the salts on the roads, and that makes 100% total sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, you look at it, and, and, and they need it. They're like, hmm, where, where can I get it? Well, right here it is. So you'll, you'll find that, and I can look and see if there's any studies out there that compare um, negative wildlife impact with vehicle collisions from states with snow compared to states with no snow. And I would, I would almost go out on a limb and say that it is drastically different, um, especially during following snowstorms. Now, what are the negative impacts of using salt? Because I know like states like Alaska, they don't use salt. They use uh, more like dirt or gravel, sand, sand yeah. that they'll put on the road to try to help with grip, but they don't use salt. So what is the negative impact of using salt on, on the roads? Well, I mean, I mean, one of the things, hell, we could go even to your vehicles. It, it'll, it'll start rusting your vehicles. Um, Ain't that but the- from a wildlife perspective, <laughs> it, yeah, it, from a wildlife perspective is that is something that they need so that in their daily travels, they're going to stop and try to take up those supplements. So um, just having it to where you're, you're, cre- you're cr- almost manufacturing an instance of increasing the potential for, again, those negative wildlife human interactions. Um, and, you know, you talk about, you know, the, the, the negative impacts um, or negative interactions between wildlife and humans, that's a billion dollar industry. Like if you look at the vehicle collisions, you look at, you know, the deaths of the wildlife, if you were to put a price on wildlife um, for, you know, if, if you go and you poach a deer, there's restitution. Well, if you, if you were to take that same restitution price and put it on the head of a, a, a 180 buck that was hit on the highway, you're looking at a lot of money that is spent just on negative interactions of human and wildlife. So that's, that's one of the biggest things. Um, Additionally, you know, all that runoff, that salt is getting right next to the roads again, or getting into the soils and stuff like that. So they're again, indirectly creating mineral licks where your wildlife are going to go. 
So then, you know, going back to it, increasing the potential for negative human wildlife interactions. So it's all kind of cyclical, right? Goes in a circle. Um, so the dirt and the gravel in, in some areas, it may just because the salt is so much more difficult to get to those places. Um, so much more expensive to get to those places. We want to take a minute here to thank Locked On Sound's newest sponsor and partner. Lit Beard Company is Wisconsin-based, veteran-owned beard business helping razor haters look good while doing good. Not only is Lit the solution for a man looking to eliminate beard itch, unslightly beard dandruff, and all the nonsense of growing a baller beard, but it'll get her closer than ever by getting rid of that rough feeling that keeps her away. As a veteran-owned business, it is important to help veterans and their families, so Lit donates $1 from every single sale to Project Welcome Home Troops. And now, if you use code word CALL, that's C-A-L-L, at checkout, you'll save 10% on all Lit Beard Company products. So give litbeardco.com and support a pro-Second Amendment, pro-freedom, veteran-owned business some of your support. Again, that's L-I-T-B-E-A-R-D-C-O dot com. Support them and show your support for our veterans and all of the local small businesses across the country. Thank you guys for listening, and let's get back to our podcast. So this might be a really bad generalization, but let's say (laughs) our, our beer season runs pretty much from October 1st through January 1st is the meat and potatoes of our season, obviously starting with bow and then getting into rifle and shotgun and stuff like that. So would it be Uh too much of a generalization to say if an early season, if you're wanting to attract deer to a certain location on your property, it's more useful in early season to use mineral blocks over corn because there's less mineral available than corn. And then late season, when there's a lot of salt on the roads, switch over to corn when minerals are at a high advantage and feed is at a super low advantage. So I'm going to take one step back. And so again, it's, it's more property specific, right? And, and even in a generality, in order to have your property be something that wildlife want to be at, you have to provide a few things, food, water, cover, right? So a lot of deer will get the majority of what they need from their day-to-day diets. The minerals are for the stressful periods, right? So we throw out a mineral block. I always recommend it in the spring, again, coming out of winter. And then again, in the fall, like you're saying, like, oh, would it be better to do this? But one thing that people don't realize is the most important thing to growing your deer and having your deer as healthy as possible is digestible energy. So having corn for the majority of the year, if not all year long, they have that energy. They have what they, they're they're getting that high energy in order to be able to take some of the other nutrients that they got, even if um, the nutrients are a limiting factor within that specific region, they're able to utilize those nutrients that are available because they have the digestible energy through the source of corn, through the source of food plots. 
So if, if I'm in an area that has a lot of roadways that are being salted, or for instance, if I'm in a property where my neighbors, you know, looking at it on Google Earth image, right? So I zoom way out and I see that my neighbors have great cover. Oh, but this neighbor, he's an ag property. So he has all the food in the world for him. I'm trading water. I'm taking, I'm taking one of the, the three pieces of that triangle and I'm creating that that they don't have. So if I already have all this stuff all around me, just like you were saying, I create what they don't have in order to hopefully have them cruise on through for whatever reason. They come through, they, they, they got their food over here, but now they're thirsty. They come over and they get their drink and then they roll over to the other property and they bed down. So creating, even in the, the stressful times of year, creating what they don't have anywhere else. That's the idea with trying to get deer to hang around your property more or longer than what they would if, if you didn't have those things. So hypothetically, let's say I just went out and I bought a big, a big chunk of land, but I I'm rolling maybe on a budget or I don't have the time, you know, the, the time's not quite right. What is the, what's the first key aspect? What's most important getting your food, your cover, water, or bedding down? Like if I can only choose one, what, which one should I go for? It, just like us, I would, I would focus on water more than anything. Um, <clears throat> deer, deer can go about seven days without food there. If depending on the season, right. You're, you're looking at three days max without water. Um, what water is water equals life. We we've known that from, from our Bible reading days, right? When we were in Bible school. So without water, um, we, we don't have the ability on a cellular level. Our bodies cannot function without water. So water first and, and even before then kind of, or with that, your habitat. Let it be native. Um, you can put in all the food plots you want. You can do all this, but if if I'm on a budget, the first thing I'm doing is I'm making sure I have water in any way, shape, or form. Whether it's me running water lines, uh, me creating ponds, um, having troughs, or in some places the lucky suckers, they have springs that feed naturally. Dig those suckers out and let them fill up. Yeah, and I guess that makes total sense. Again, it's one of those things where if you would have asked me on the spot, I probably would have said food's most important until, you know, you have somebody point out to you that water, you know, they can go twice as long without food than compared to water. So that makes a lot of sense too. And one of those things that I oh, guess, yeah. common sense-wise, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, again, you might have another biologist on here that's like, oh, well, you got to have cover because if they can't get away, you're not going to have any population. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole, um, triangle of food, cover, water, they all go together. And I, 
I'm going to say they are almost as equally important. But when it comes down to it, again, even getting down to the cellular level, if, if we don't have enough water, our body doesn't function correctly. And that's the same thing with wildlife, the same thing with any organism. If they don't have the, the building blocks um, of our cellular structures functioning due to the lack of water, we're, that's when you'll see, you know, your malnourished deer, um, your diseased deer. If, if we don't have water, there's a whole lot of things that go wrong in our bodies. Gotcha. Right. So do you have something to say on it? I do not know. Right. Not on that. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I'm going to pivot away a little bit from the actual biological side of things. You guys get to hunt a lot more different. And I should be honest and say a lot cooler species than we do here in Michigan. You know, here in Michigan, you have duck hunters, you have white-tailed deer hunters, and you might run into somebody who got the chance to shoot an elk up north or something like that. You must uh -huh. do hunting. What's kind of your favorite stuff to hunt personally? What do you have the most excitement doing? I'll tell you. So, so the most excitement for, for me, um, I guide hunts. Um, I, I manage a ranch uh, and, and we have exotics. And, you know, my most excitement comes from just the first year hunter, first time hunter. Doesn't matter what species they're after. Um, Hey, you know, they're, they're after a whitetail. Cool. You know, when, when they harvest their animal and it's their first animal, dude, I'm probably more nervous than they are. And I'm just behind the camera. I'm not even squeezing the trigger. I'm not looking through the scope. I'm not putting the crosshairs on anything. I'm just looking through the camera, but the most badass animal in my personal opinion is a black buck, black buck antelope. The, the, the contrasting colors between the black and the white are just phenomenal. And their, their spiraled horns are, are probably some of the coolest that are out there. Um, now, if, if, if you want a cool trophy with meat, that's probably not the guy to go harvest because he's about 90 to 110 pounds if he's a fat boy. So you're definitely not putting meat in the freezer, but they're, they're pretty cool. Um, and then one, one of the least favorite, not because the animal itself, uh, we had a guy harvest in Eland and these dudes get up, uh, you know, 22,000, 2,200 pounds, 2,500 pounds. They're massive. It took me three and a half hours nonstop cutting to cape this dude out and to quarter him up. So that's a pretty massive animal that we, you don't even hear about when you're talking up North hunters here. What, oh, what's yeah. the process going to hunting those? Are you more or less, you know, scalping the grazing land or are you, are you using calls? Are you, what's the process? Hunting uh, those? Is that something we've never even had the opportunity to really talk about? Uh, we, a, a lot of times um, it, we, we call it safari style, right? So we're riding around in, in a truck or in a ranger and we just happen to come across them, whether it be in a field, whether um, it be in, in, in some of the, the more free covered areas. Um, and it all depends on the property, right? So there's a lot of properties that are, that have 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 acres plus, and they have big pastures where you can just roll up on a safari style and take a, you know, a pretty good shot of, 
300, 400, 500 yard shot and you can have that animal. Um, but it's, it's, dude, they're, they're huge. Um, you know, your, your free choice protein feeders or anywhere, you know, we got, we got 2000 pound free choice protein feeders. They make these feeders look small. They are almost the size of a minivan. They're huge. Yeah, I bet. So what kind of, what are you using to shoot those with? Like what, what kind of caliber are you taking out to shoot those with? Cause that, that's a pretty massive animal to take down. So I, I, I would prefer like a, a seven mag or something of, of, of a larger caliber. Um, but you can, you can do it with a bow. Um, and even getting back to that, I'm, I'm a guy that's about where you shoot, not what you shoot. Um, so as long as the shot's placed right, um, I probably wouldn't let somebody come out there with like a 270 or smaller to be like, hmm, I want to shoot in Eland. Ah, well, no, no, probably not. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we, we can use this. And so, but yeah, you, you, would, need, you would need something that ha- has some punch behind it. Um, I think somebody with a, a well-placed 308 would, would do okay. Um, but I mean, these animals are so big and you know, the, a lot of the exotics that we have, right. They, they've been messing around with tigers and lions for thousands of years. So you bring them to Texas and they're like, Oh, that's six, five. Uh, okay. Thanks for playing. I'll, I'll continue to eat. They're, they're not worried about that at all. Now, I just looked up a picture of one because I had no idea what an eland was. They literally, to me, they look like an antelope and a, a cow had a baby. <laughs> oh, 100%. Um, it, it, but they're, it's almost like a Brahma bull um, in an antelope had a baby because they're huge. Like the, uh, the guy that shot them, so – you know, that, that's a lot of meat for anybody to take home. So the guy, he, he was like, Hey, do you guys want some take, take it home with you? And I'm like, heck yeah. So I took the neck and just a, uh, one flank from behind the rib cage, 147 pounds of meat from his neck. Oh, and, and a, about a 16 pound brisket. Wow, yeah, that's definitely a chunk of meat to take off. I mean, that's that's more than what we get off of a whole deer or two here. So that's that's crazy to just come off the neck like that. Oh yeah, just his neck. I was like, bro, that's pretty okay. insane. Razor's full. So out of curiosity, if you don't mind me asking this question, let's say let's say I wanted to come down and get a guided hunt to to kill one. That, that's got to run you a good chunk of money, right? How much does that cost? Uh, we we actually I I look at our prices. And I try to be as competitive as possible for, for an eland for that animal right there would be right around 7,500 bucks. Gotcha. Oh, so that, I mean, and that's, that's the, you know, you, you show up on a Friday afternoon. Um, we got lunch ready. That's three days, two nights, meals, lodging. Um, again, me, me and the guys caping it out, quartering it up. Um, Basically, that covers everything but the gratuity. Open bar, you know what I mean? So, gotcha. Yeah, that's not a bad deal that, at all. No, it, and a lot of people will say, well, why not just go to Africa? 
And I'm like, yes, do that if you can. Right. That would be awesome to go to, go to Africa. Um, but that's not in a lot of people's timeline. They don't have the time to go and do those things. So what do they do? They like, okay, well, I have the money to do it. And it's a bucket list thing. So, hey, I'm going to go spend three days, have, you know, good fellowship with, with the people in camp, going to have a great time, see great animals, and eat good food the entire time. And I tell people, you're, you're only there to lift your hand for a couple of things. Find the waiver because there's bound to be something stupid that we do out there. Um, eat your food. Enjoy your drinks when we're not hunting and squeeze the trigger. I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's down here. A lot of times it's a safari when you go to some of these properties, some of the coolest animals that we've grown up watching on that geo wild are literally right there in front of you in your stand. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty unique and definitely crazy opportunity to be able to go down and do it. I don't even see really the, the benefit over going to Africa. It sounds like you're going to see a lot of cool stuff down there at your ranch in general. And I wouldn't even want to know what the flight cost would be to bring you and, you know, 1,500 to 2,500 pounds of meat back with you on an airplane. Oh, dude, no. Um, that's like, I've, I've talked to some of my buddies that have gone and they're like, man, just to get there, you know, because over there, when, when you harvest an animal, the meat goes to the local villagers or or whatever is there so the meat stays in africa but you still get your trophy you know taped out salted and put in a box for you and shipped and they were saying that depending on which route you go it's like 15 to two thousand dollars just to send over your tape to bring it back yeah and then you have to have your taxidermist over here and pray that your taxidermist that's that, that you've used for your whitetail has had experience with exotics because it's, it's a different ball game. And, and I've talked to many taxidermists that are like, Nope, I won't even mess with an exotic. Yeah. And there's another aspect I totally didn't think about is how many taxidermists, you know, if I were to bring it back to Michigan, how many taxidermists around here would I trust to give an animal that, you know, I just spent upwards of 10 grand to go get, you know, that that's a pretty oh, risky yeah. thing to trust somebody with. Oh yeah. You would, uh, of course, I have uh, a few taxidermists that we work with, but up there you'd have to tap into old Uncle Ted and see who, who who he uses to get his stuff done. Now, I also I heard a couple guys on some other podcasts talking about going down and uh, archery hunting axis deer down in Texas. Now, I, I heard the population and the numbers are growing on the axis deer down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but oh, the, yeah. The, the, they're talking about percentages of actual of guys going in with an archery hunting um, these axis deer. I heard they're pretty crafty and it, it was like, it was some absurd number. It was like one in every 20 hunters kills an axis deer with a bow. I don't know if you've got, if you oh. killed any or. No, I, I haven't, but we have them on the property and I've had people say, Hey, I want to, I, I would like to shoot an axis with my bow. And I'm like, okay, so axis is the hardest hunt that we have. in in my opinion, and, um, that's with the rifle. It's one of the hardest hunts with the rifle. So now you're just increasing difficulty by wanting to harvest it with a bow, which I'm okay with. Bring your bow. We love bow hunters. I would prefer, and most of us, cause we're all bow hunters ourselves would prefer 
you take it with a bow just because that's intimate, right? That's, that's 25, 30, 40 yards as opposed to a rifle where we can reach out to 200, but even on an axis, 200 is, is risky. Um, it, the likelihood isn't exactly there. Um, the probability is low. So the thing with axes is where there are a forest animal. If you have any amount of cover on your property, they don't even come out for corn. They don't, they don't come to the feeders often. So they're there. And if you see one, it's like seeing Bigfoot. Except you better squeeze a round off if that's what you're wanting to get this done real quick. It's tough. Yeah, that's definitely a dream hunt for me and something I'd love to come down and be able to do one day for sure. Cause I think a couple podcasts ago, we were talking about our dream hunts and that was definitely one of the couple that I listed on my bucket list to be able to do. So hopefully I can come down to Texas one of these years and knock that off the bucket list. Uh, well, 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 you know, a guy, so we'll, we'll see what we can work out. <laughs> that I do. I definitely know a guy. Um, we're gearing up on time for a little bit over an hour. Um, clearly okay. there's a lot more to talk about. So I want to say to all of our listeners, I think we're pretty sure we'll be having him, him, having him on here again soon. Um, but we're going to pivot really quick to the last thing we wanted to talk about and get some, you know, football pickings in for the day before season start or the week starts tomorrow. Um, now uh-huh. I understand you're a Bengals fan, aren't you? Who day? Who did? You are absolutely correct. And don't say anything about Cooper Rush running up out of the building. <laughs> but I've got to bring up the fact that you guys aren't off to a good year and you lost to a backup quarterback that was ranked 54th at the start of the year. If, if, if you look at the uh, Cincinnati Bengals, uh, we have a history of uh, losing to backup quarterbacks. It's atrocious. Um, but I will say, I actually like old Cooper for y'all. Um, I think he will do better for y'all than, uh, old Prescott. Uh, that's something me and Hunter have debated on a lot for the past, what, four weeks now, three and a half weeks now. And I've gone back and forth. Uh, Dak at his prime is definitely our option, but unfortunately I haven't seen Dak at his prime for about two seasons now. So a calm, uh-huh. cool, and collective well, quarterback behind the helm has been nice to see for a change. Well, here's the thing with you guys having Cooper as opposed to Dak. Limited to no expectations, right? And there's no ego that Cooper has to live up to. He's just out there playing ball. Yeah, that's true. And now you Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say in, in the team – actually has to be a team as opposed to, you know, oh, Dak got us. He can pull us out of this. But, yeah, yeah everybody on the same that's page, definitely everybody true. going towards that goal. The, the way I like, I like to best sum it up that I heard somebody say last week was when, when Cooper Rush is out there, I'm not afraid he's going to embarrass the Cowboys. But when Dak's out there, you never know if he's going to come out and throw three picks or if he's going to be, you know, a 98 QBR rating. <laughs> yep, absolutely. All right, so we'll wrap it up with a couple quick pickums here because I think between you, me, and Hunter, we all have vastly different opinions when it comes to the NFL. So okay. let's start off our list here. I think I've got five pickums wrote down here. Who do you have this week for the Bucks versus the Falcons? Bucks. 
I've got the Bucs as well. The Falcons can't throw the ball. That's probably the only one we'll agree on. The Falcons are pretty trash, and Brady's only gone 0-3. He's only lost three games in a row one time in his career, and that was in 2002. So I don't foresee that happening yeah. again. Um, no, you, 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 you don't punch the goat too many times before he gets real mad. No, definitely not. Um, what about the Eagles at the Cardinals? You've got probably the best team in the league, even though it hurts for me to say that. Versus a team that struggled a little bit but needs to find their mojo. I, I got to go with the Eagles. They're, they're playing good ball, and Jalen just keeps impressing as a young quarterback. Um, just let him go out there and do his thing. And their, their defense is playing well enough to, to kind of hinder a, uh, a limping offense in Arizona. I think the Eagles get it done. They punch him in the mouth early just like Oakland did to the Cardinals. Uh, but this time they don't let the Cardinals back in the game and win in overtime. They're def- I think the Eagles pull it out. I've got this being my upset of the week, actually. Ooh. I think Ooh. the Eagles are pretty high on their horse right now. Um, and I think Kyler Murray needs to – he's starting to get back in his drift a little bit. So I'd like to see the Cardinals come out and knock the Eagles down a peg or two before they come to Dallas next week. But um, because if they come to Dallas and they're, you know, undefeated still, I think it's going to be a real tough game for us. And I think, I think Kyler Murray and the Cardinals can pull it through. So that's, that's actually my upset of the week right there. Well, see, as, as, as a Cowboys fan, I'd want them still up on that high horse where they think they're untouchable and then come into town so that I can knock them off their high horse. Now, that, that's true, and I 100% see your point, but I do not want to see the momentum-filled Jalen Hurts. I said that I think he's one of the better QBs in the league. Everyone called me crazy. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like seeing him succeed, even though he is you know, a divisional rival. But I guess either way, I think Dallas is going to have a tough time with him next week. But I'd like to see them a little oh, yeah. bit less momentum-filled going into that week. That's for sure. I can see that, for sure. Next pick'em game that we've got on the board here is the Broncos at the Colts. It's an interesting game. What do you got on that? Well, you see, I was I, I was an idiot up to this point. But let me make that statement. <laughs> and I picked old Russell Wilson in my fantasy league because he has so many weapons around him now that there was no way he wasn't going to be top five. No way. They haven't caught their stride yet. But. Colts defense isn't really that fantastic, especially against the pass. So I think I'm going to stick with my gut and I'm going to go with old, old Russ and the Broncos. I'm going to agree with you on that pick. And uh, if it makes you feel any better, I'm in a uh, two quarterback league and I took Matthew Stafford first and Dak Prescott second. So I've only won one game so far in that league. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's rough. Yeah, that was a bad pick <laughs> at, at QBs, that's for sure. Um, I mean, I don't really have any stake in that game. I think it's going to be close. I, I wanted to add it to the board. I just think it's going to be close down to the wire kind of game. Um, the more I think about it, the more I give it over to Russell Wilson. I was going to pick the Colts when we talked about it earlier. Me and Willie did. But – I don't know. Russell Wilson is, I just, I think he's got the mojo to be able to pull it off, win that game, maybe by like a field goal. Yeah, that was an interesting game to watch. 
Oh, yeah. Second to last pick. Um, I figure we'll do our two teams last. We got Dallas at the Rams. Uh, I'll, I'll go last on this one because I might have the most to say. Uh, mm. I, <laughs> my heart, my heart says the Rams. I just, I love picking on Willie because I hate the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, but no, I really think the Dallas Cowboys pull it out and they win. The offense of the Rams right now has been looking fleeting. It's been bad. It's, it's been just bad. not on a rhythm like it was at all last year. So Dallas gets the win. If if the Rams could reestablish their running game, they would get back to that team that narrowly escaped my Cincinnati Bengals in the Super Bowl last year. Um, but as bad as I hate to say it, I think I'm going to go with Coop. Don't go with the boys on this one. <laughs> and, you know, somehow they're still – I think at the start of the week they were six-point underdogs. Right now they're four-and-a-half-point underdogs. So I don't know how that came out to be. But I've got Matthew Stafford throwing two interceptions. I've got – I'm going to say Micah Parsons has three sacks and Dallas wins by 20. It's a blowout game. Dang, blowout, huh? I don't think Stafford's going to be able to do anything offensively against our defense. We've got, I'm going to go ahead and say the best defense in the league, definitely a top three. Stafford mm-hmm. gets too flighty with the ball. He throws two picks, 11 from heaven. Micah Parsons has at least three sacks. So yeah, I'm, I'm going Dallas on that one full, full through and through. And then Bengals at the Ravens. You've got two great quarterbacks battling head to head. I'd say that's probably the best game of the week. Oh, don't. Put this on me like that. I'll go last on this one. All right, go ahead, Honor. I have got the Bengals. I've got old Joe Burrow off the momentous win from uh, there in Miami, and I think they're going to pull it out. I think the Ravens this year, what is it, twice now that they've come back? They've been beaten from, what, 20 up or something like that? So I definitely think the Bengals got it. Yeah, and I'm going to go – I hate to say it to you. Um, I think I think Bengals probably got this one. I think Ravens have probably a 14-point lead going into the fourth quarter, and Bengals come back. Joe Burrow's great at those. I think he comes back and wins by probably one to three he wins by. I don't think it's a great game for Joe Burrow, but I do think he pulls it off. Um, the, the, the offensive line – that we went out and we bought this year. We have four new starters on the O-line, right? So week one and two, we've seen that with 10 million sacks already. Um, I think I think we were on pace in the first two weeks for 152 sacks this year, which is awesome for Joe Burrow and his new <laughs> knee that, that he got last year. I think the Bengals pull it off but it all depends on if that front five of ours can, can repeat, you know, even the three sacks that they've given up last week. You know, the if we give up less than seven sacks, I give us an opportunity or a chance to win any game against anybody we play because our offense is that good or has that much talent on it. But it doesn't matter how much talent you have, if your quarterback can't get them the ball, you're not doing much of anything. Um I do likewise think that we're, we're down going into half. Um, we, we've been starting out kind of slow. Let's just kind of dink and dunk. Let's not do anything. Let's make it real exciting. Uh, they got the nickname Cardiac Cats a few years ago because <laughs> it, 
it was all this late, late fourth quarter overtime type stuff. Um, I think we pull it off. It's going to be close. It's going to be good. You know, a, a big division game. Um, and Lamar's supporting cast, it, it, he has no wide receivers. Um, his, his running game isn't there. If you shut down uh, Andrews and you keep him in the pocket, yes, he's, he's extremely talented as a throwing quarterback as well. But if he doesn't have anybody to throw the ball to, again, kind of like the same scenario with us, I think we pulled it off, barely. Well, best of luck to you guys this week, and uh, that'll pretty much do us for today. We'll have M4 Outdoors' Instagram, Facebook, anything else we can linked in the description of this podcast for you guys, so be sure to go check him out, everything he does for wildlife management, and uh, send us any questions you guys have on. We'll make some Instagram posts later on about you know submitting some questions for sure because we'd definitely like to have you on again. So. Is there anything else you'd like to say or tell people how to get in contact for you with you if uh, they need some some wildlife management going on? Uh, you can you can visit the website at www.m4outdoorsllc.com. Um, we're on Facebook at M4 Outdoors LLC, and on Instagram we are at M4 underscore Outdoors underscore LLC. Um, yeah, and I look forward to being back on with you guys and answering any questions that we may have. Um, and there may be some that I don't know, and I'm not afraid to say, yeah, I have no idea about that, but I can get you guys that information. So, yeah, look forward to it, guys. Yep, thanks for coming on, and thank you to all the listeners for joining us today, and uh, see you guys next time.